This is History West Midlands. Historians have extensively studied the achievements of the Scottish engineer James Watt Jr., seen by many as the father of the steam engines that powered the Industrial Revolution. However, despite their efforts, Watt the man often remains a mysterious figure. Now, researcher Eleanor Beeston has explored Watt's personal notebooks and correspondence, preserved in the Wolfson Centre for Archival Research at the Library of Birmingham, to reveal Watt's state of mind, his relationships with family and friends, and his unspoken fears. She talked to History West Midlands publisher Mike Gibbs. Eleanor, to begin with, please can you describe the material that you have used to get these insights into James Watt? I looked at around 25 notebooks, all belonging to James Watt. He kept them in his lifetime, and that was my original research brief. I then looked at some of the correspondence between Watt and various friends and family members. I couldn't look at all of it because there is loads of it in the archive, so I picked out the bits that I thought would be interesting and relevant. I wanted to learn about his relationships with his family and his friends. And these documents, they show a lot about him. They show he was neat, he was meticulous, he cared a lot about his work, but he did keep his work life separate from his personal life. He very much loved his family, he relied on his friends, but he was also very anxious, he worried about health and about money. And historians regard him as a genius. Did the notebooks reflect that? Yeah, they very much confirm this idea about what as being a genius. They're extremely careful, they're extremely neat, they're extremely accurate. The handwriting is beautiful, everything's really beautifully drawn. It's neat almost to an obsessive extent, I would say. There's lots of drawings, they're amazing to look at, and they look like they've been printed, they're so neat. And this is in contrast to other notebooks that we see from the time. So lots of people at the time, particularly kind of polymath men, would use notebooks to record their work, and they'd use them as jotters or like aid memoirs. And Watts are really unusually neat. They're a very neat example. So if you look at Erasmus Darwin's notebooks, they're really quite messy. They're quite scrawled. They're just like, you know, jotters full of ideas and messy handwriting. And they probably only made sense to Erasmus Darwin himself. Whereas Watts are perfectly readable to an outsider. You don't have to know what was going through his head in order to be able to really understand from his notebooks what he was thinking about, what he was writing about, what he was doing. So they include everything from like ink recipes um, to equations, information about his canal surveys that he was doing, records of his expenses, and they are almost exclusively professional. There's very few personal references in these notebooks at all. And what examples of inspirational thinking did you find? So you do find occasional rough jottings. So you'll get, it's quite funny, little sums in the middle of a page or even sometimes on the leather front cover of these notebooks, which is in contrast to his usual working style, which is very methodical and very careful. So one potential explanation for these little equations could be that he had sudden bursts of inspiration and he would literally write his ideas down wherever he could find space. He was also an extremely skilled artist, so there was we can see there was more to him than just being a scientist. I think he really enjoyed drawing. The drawings, they, they give a real sense of calm. I think he got a lot out of them. And he clearly took great pride in his work. That's the main thing you can see. He really cared about his work. He was really passionate about it. I think he enjoyed it. And um, I do suspect that maybe he buried himself in his work sometimes to perhaps distract himself from the other quite complicated things that were happening in his life. 
Well, we'll come to some of those in a little while, but do these factual pages give us other insights? And in your notes that you prepared for this podcast kindly, you talked about what the worrier. What was he worrying about? James Watt was a very well-known hypochondriac. And when you read his notebooks, it is one of the most obvious things you learn about him. It's one of the only personal things that does creep into these workbooks. And he was once referred to by Erasmus Darwin as being hypochondriacal, which I thought was quite funny. His health anxiety was probably rooted in childhood. James Watt was the only surviving child of his mother. And he suffered a lot of poor health throughout his childhood. And he saw a lot of death around him. So lots of his children died, his first wife died. So it's quite understandable that he grew up to be this hypochondriac, this person who worried a lot about his health. So what does refer to his health a lot in his notebooks as well as in his correspondence? There are frequent mentions of what being unwell in these notebooks. He often complains of headaches specifically. Sometimes he'll talk about the fact that he's had to take the day off due to illness. But often he, he does seem to manage to carry on. So you get these quite funny little references where he'll say, had a headache, built a furnace, which entertained <laughs> me to read. And then lots of the letters as well he gets from other people. They start with something along the lines of, Dear James, I'm so sorry to hear that you are unwell. So he clearly talks about his health when he's writing to his friends and they write back and try and you know reassure him. Lots of his friends were doctors. Um, he was good friends with Erasmus Darwin and William Small. So they were both medical doctors and both members of the Lunar Society. And I think he relied on them for reassurance. And he was very concerned about the health of his friends and his family. Letters from friends to what include reassurances that don't worry, everybody's well. And it's kind of understandable because there was a lot of illness at the time. So it's understandable that people were concerned for each other's health. And reading these notes... Do you think he was ill or do you think it was pure hypochondria? It's perfectly possible that he did suffer from ill health. You know, recurrent migraines are definitely a possibility. But the obsessive references to his ill health in conjunction with his concern for the health of friends and family would suggest that there's definitely like a psychological element to what's going on here. It's possible actually that the headaches that he discusses were a symptom of anxiety that does actually come in later. And we do see an example of that later. And it wasn't just health that he was worried about. He was worried about money, wasn't he? Yeah, there was definitely concerns about money. When he was a child, his father had some financial struggles due to a failed business venture. And I think that possibly led to a fairly cautious relationship with money throughout his life. Um, he was very frugal with resources. So he bought very high quality stationery and paper and notebooks. But he would use each piece of paper multiple times because paper was very expensive. So often you see letters being repurposed for scrap paper. And that's not particularly unusual. But as I discussed earlier, he would use the front cover of his notebooks for jottings. And it could be that that was a sudden flash of inspiration and the cover was the nearest possible surface. But it could just be that he was being frugal and pragmatic about his use of resources. And he saw the leather front cover and he thought, I can use that. And, you know, he was just being efficient with money. So being frugal is not unusual, but it does show that despite the fact that he was this really important engineer, money wasn't beyond his concern. We can also see that he kept very careful records of his expenses. That was one of the primary uses for his notebooks, which again was fairly typical behaviour for the time. But again, it shows that money was something that he thought about. But we do get um, an indication from his letters that his anxiety about money was causing him to become stressed, which was giving him headaches. Again, we can see this link between anxiety and a physical symptom like headaches. There's a letter from Anne Watt, James Watt's second wife, 
and she mentions that she's been talking to a doctor friend of theirs about her husband's health and this doctor says you will get free of your headaches when you get rich so either she's just <laughs> nudging him to like maybe get that engine pan sorted or there is some genuine concern that worrying about money is causing him physical symptoms yeah despite the fact he was a very rich man yeah well he was by the time he died i think but throughout his life money wasn't outside of his concern now let's turn to what these notebooks tell us about his relationships with family. Let's start with his marriages, because he had two marriages, I think. Yes, he did. His first marriage was to Margaret Miller, his cousin. They got married in 1764, and it lasted until her death in 1773. They had this very warm, loving marriage, very affectionate, and her death, I think, affected him very badly. His second marriage was to a woman called Anne McGregor. They got married in 1776, and they were together until James Watt's death in 1819. So they were married for over 40 years, which is a long marriage even by today's standards. But for the time, that was an extremely long marriage. The second marriage was quite different to the first marriage. It was perhaps more typical of a marriage at the time, but it was still very important. And both wives very much supported Watt's life and his work. And what specifically do we learn about his marriage with Margaret, his first wife? So if we look at their correspondence, it paints a picture of a couple who were very much in love. There's lots of playful, childish teasing. There's a lovely letter from 1770 that starts, Dear James, don't you deserve to be scolded? You never write to let me know how you are. But from the tone of the rest of the letter, it's clear that she's kind of playfully teasing with him. There's no anger, there's no criticism, they're just joking. All of their letters are kind of full of jokes and jibes. In the letter, she's referred to as Peggy, which was James's nickname for her. The letters show that Margaret and James, they missed each other a lot when he was working away, which was quite a lot of the time. In some of her later letters, Margaret expresses regret that James is away for so long. She writes about how she desperately wishes that he could come home. There's a letter from September 1773, not long before her death, where Margaret writes that nothing could give me greater pleasure than hearing from you. So clearly these letters meant a lot to her. So Margaret and James were much more than a traditional Georgian man and wife. They had quite a modern relationship. James treated his wife as a friend and an intellectual equal. His letters include details of his work, his thoughts about politics, um, all sorts. Um, so he, he valued his wife not just as a companion, but as a person with whom he could discuss lots of things, from you know, his fears and anxieties to politics, fashion, current affairs, all sorts, his work, everything. What insights into Watt's reaction to the death of his first wife do we get? So we can see this in the notebooks, and it is genuinely really moving to read. So in his notebook, um, on September the 25th, 1773, Watt writes that he's received a letter from his friend to say that he needs to come home. So he then documents a four-day journey on horseback through horrible weather as he's desperately trying to get home to see his wife. He gets home on September the 29th, 1773, and he's greeted at the door by his friend, who's dressed all in black and what knows exactly what's happened. And he writes in his diary, I did what I could to force grief from my mind, but feared to come home where I had lost my kind welcome. So he can't bring himself to go into his house. So he has to stay with his friend for a bit. He goes on to describe his wife as being the comfort of my life, a faithful wife and a dear, dear friend. So this entry makes it clear just how much what loved his wife and how much he saw her not just as a wife but as a friend his greatest comfort and the welcoming presence that made his house a home 
And his grief and his heartbreak is evident. His diaries remain blank for a while, so clearly he's taken some time off to grieve. The entries resume in mid-October, but they're much shorter. There's less detail. He's clearly not as focused. And there's several times where he just writes that he's not well. He doesn't give details of what's wrong, he just says he's not well. And I suspect that this is because he's maybe struggling with depression because he's so heartbroken over his wife's death. And then in a diary from a year later, um, there's a little lock of hair tucked into the back and it's a lock of Margaret Watt's hair and he's keeping it as like a tangible reminder, a piece of his wife that he can keep with him. And three years later, he marries a second time. Yeah, so he marries um, Anne McGregor And the correspondence between them is less affectionate than the letters between James and his first wife, Margaret. They lack the humour and the warmth, and they tend to be more descriptive of their daily lives. You know, talking about their children, there's not so much evidence that he's using and to discuss ideas with. They occasionally show a little bit of hostility between the two as well. There's a letter from October 1779, and it's been written just after Anne met some of James's friends. She writes, Indeed, my dear, you did not do your friends justice when you said they would be indifferent about me, which suggests that James has actually told his second wife and that his friends aren't going to like her, which perhaps isn't suggestive of the happiest marriage. But as we discussed earlier, James Watt struggled with depression at various points in his life, especially after the death of his first wife. And I think it's possible that his depression caused problems in his second marriage. Anne's letters to her husband also hint a troubled relationship between her and her stepdaughter Margaret, Watt's daughter from his first marriage. There's a letter from October 1779 when Anne mentions that Margaret has been rude to some friends that they've been visiting and refusing to say goodbye. Anne is clearly quite embarrassed by Margaret's behaviour and she's clearly being disobedient. And Anne deals with this by complaining about Margaret's behaviour to James. And this does hint that there was definitely friction between the two. So the letters basically suggest that James Watt's first marriage was warmer and more loving and more affectionate than his second. So there's a definite contrast between the two. I did become a bit kind of personally invested in the people I was researching. So it was hard to not see Anne as some kind of villainous stepmother who swept in and replaced Margaret. Um, So maybe I interpreted the evidence like that because it's almost what I wanted to see. In reality, the relationship between Watt and his second wife was probably pretty typical of the time and not bad, just not as affectionate as the first marriage. Watt had seven children. Could you introduce us to them? Yeah, so he had five children with his first wife, two daughters and three sons. Two of those survived to adulthood, his daughter Margaret and his son James Watt Jr. James Watt Jr. was the only child who outlived his father and he secured his father's legacy. He ensured that his father was celebrated and remembered after his death. And with his first wife, he had three other children who died as babies, Joseph, John and Agnes. With his second wife, he had two children, a son and a daughter, a son called Gregory and a daughter called Janet, often known as Jessie. Gregory lived into his late 20s. Jessie died as a teenager, probably of TB, and she was actually the patient of Erasmus Darwin, Watt's friend. To put it into perspective, Watt had lots of children, but he was really quite unlucky with them. Three died as babies, one died as a teenager, two died in their 20s, leaving James Watt Jr. as the only child to outlive his father, and he lived into his late 70s. And what does the correspondence tell us about Watt's relationship with his surviving children? So the letters would suggest that the relationships are loving but not that affectionate. That will be partly because of the time and the role of the father in the 18th and 19th century. 
and partly because what was this kind of dour Scotsman who probably didn't want to be outwardly affectionate in his letters. <laughs> but he did clearly care a lot about his children. So another researcher on the project, Harry Wilkins, did his research specifically on Gregory Watt. And Harry found that Gregory had a, a strong relationship with his father, but James Watt could be quite critical and cold with his son. So it's not an affectionate relationship. But I ended up focusing on James's relationship with his eldest daughter, Margaret, and the letters can tell us a really interesting story about their relationship. It became strained when she was in her late teens, and they were eventually estranged from each other for about five years, probably between 1786 and 1791. Their contact resumes in 1791 with a bit of correspondence, and they basically have an argument via letter that lasts for a few months. What are they arguing about? Well, it's not entirely clear at first, so the first letter goes from what to Margaret. So he initiates contact. We don't know what that letter says because it's not in the archive. But she replies and she sends him a very indignant reply. She describes his letter as being harsh, violent and filled with reproaches, which I think I have not merited. She's clearly offended not only by his accusations, but by the fact that he so willingly believes these bad reports that he's heard about her. Perhaps the most interesting bit of the letter is that she throws back her own accusation that some people have done everything in their power to wean your affections from me. So she's accusing somebody who is close to them of spreading a false rumour about her. So we're not sure who she's accusing. Stepmother? Yeah, so it's perfectly possible that because Margaret and her stepmother Anne maybe didn't get on, that Margaret suspects that her stepmother has something to do with this. And do we know what the original cause of the split was? What was what accusing his daughter of? So we don't know what caused them to split in 1786, but we can actually see why he initiated contact in 1791. And that was because he'd heard this rumour. Margaret's very angry that her father believes the rumour, but um, he's heard this rumour that she's going to get married and she's not told her father about it. So Margaret writes in her letter, I shall not marry any person without first consulting you and my worthy aunts. I never did, nor shall I ever visit anyone without their approbation, whatever may have been said to the contrary. But she does apologise for having upset her father, so that's kind of resolved. And then a few months later, a Mr Miller writes to James Watt to ask for his daughter's hand in marriage. So clearly she has actually been seeing this Mr Miller, but she's kind of, she's denying it. But anyway, Mr Miller writes for permission to ask Margaret to marry him. And how old is Margaret at this time? Margaret's in her early 20s at this point. James Watt agrees to the marriage. He sends Margaret a generous sum of money. And then Margaret sends him a very affectionate letter, thanking him for his generosity and promising that she will take on board his criticisms and try and learn from him and become a better person. The correspondence continues. She starts to send him cheerful, friendly letters, so clearly they're reconciled, which was really nice to see. In 1793, she has a daughter called Agnes, possibly named after her sister, who died as a toddler. So now James Watt has a granddaughter. But then in June, um, James receives a letter from Mr Miller, his son-in-law, and it's sealed with a black wax seal, which is quite unusual. Usually they're red, so I knew from that that it probably wasn't good news. And it was to say that Margaret has died aged 26. And judging from the timing, it was probably a complication following childbirth. And I had become quite emotionally invested in this, so I was, I was sad to see this letter, and I was genuinely relieved that they'd been reconciled before her death, because I think it would have really badly damaged James had his daughter died while they were still estranged from each other. 
James Watt doesn't mention his daughter's death in his notebooks, so it's hard to know exactly how he was affected, but I do think it would have impacted him deeply. Even though they were estranged, I believe he still genuinely cared about her and loved her. And I believe that because he made the effort to get in touch with her after she supposedly behaved badly. So at the time, a daughter seeing somebody without having her father's permission, without having the permission of her parents or aunts, that would have been enough of an offence for him to cast her out, to write her out of the family books, to forget about her, never speak of her again. But clearly he didn't want to do that. So he made the effort to get back in touch with her, to tell her that she was behaving badly because he clearly cared about her reputation and he wanted her to be happily married. You know, he wanted her to live a happy life. Um, he didn't disown her. He got back in touch and that's why I think that he did genuinely care about her and he did love her even though they were estranged. After this research project that you completed, what are your overall impressions of James Watt? I think he was really quite remarkable. He did such amazing things, which are all the more incredible when you consider just what he had to deal with in his life. He had poor physical and mental health. He dealt with a huge amount of grief and tragedy. He didn't just lose his first wife. He lost six children. I mean, that's the kind of tragedy that most of us can't begin to imagine. And the fact that he dealt with all of these extremely difficult things, but also accomplished such amazing things, you know, things that we still talk about today, it shows that he was impressive. He was resilient. He just soldiered on. And I think that's really admirable. So in summary, what phrases, words, adjectives would you use to describe what based on your research? I describe him as modest, reserved, resilient, stoical. But I do think this trope of the quiet genius really does summarise him rather nicely. Eleanor, thank you very, very much indeed for a really fascinating insight into James Watt well beyond our usual discussion of what the genius. Thanks very much indeed. It's my pleasure. You can discover more articles, podcasts and films about James Watt and his family, including Dr Stephen Mullins' research in the University of Birmingham archives on their involvement in the transatlantic slave trade at our website, www.historywm.com where you can also order Dr. Malcolm Dick and Kate Croft's book about James Watt Sr. The Power to Change the World, James Watt, A Life in 50 Objects. Music